All right, everyone, welcome to the 34th episode of our news podcast. This is going from January 20th to February 5th. This podcast is sponsored by Mission Essential Gear, your one-stop combat shop, home of the duels, the tactical handbook for unit leaders. It's available at emmygearco.com and Amazon as well. Also, check out the Freelancers, a media and research collective dedicated to covering modern conflicts with a soft focus on foreign fighters. Find them on Twitter at CBT Freelancers, Instagram at Freelancers Blog, and their website at freelancersconflictblog.wordpress.com. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. That is at patreon.com slash analyze educate just for a couple bucks a month. That will really help us get more content out there. Um, we could also bring on more people to, again, give us more content. Um, and it will just help us free up time. Um, any support you could give us, we appreciate. So uh, please consider it. Thank you very much. And this week we are, I guess for these past two weeks, we're actually only going to focus on Syria. We're going to focus on two major events um, surrounding ISIS in Syria. And um, yeah, sorry, this will be kind of a short podcast. I wish it was longer, um, but yeah, I just had to get something out there for these past two weeks. So uh, yeah, please bear with us. And with that being said, we will get started. So starting it off again, we are doing this all with Syria on January 20th, roughly 250 to 300 ISIS militants attacked the SDF run al-Siniya prison in the city of Haska, Syria. The attack began with two suicide car bombs, followed by an assault with the small arms. Coalition and SDF officials claim the attack was initially repelled, but an unknown number of prisoners escaped and the fighting spread to the surrounding areas in Hasaka. As clashes entered the second day, U.S. Apache attack helicopters and F-16 fighters provided close air support to the fighters of the Syrian Democratic Forces, SDF, and U.S. Army Bradley infantry fighting vehicles were seen fighting in the areas around the prison. U.S. and British Special Forces were also seen assisting Kurdish forces in clearing the prison and surrounding areas. By the 23rd, the perimeter of the prison was secured and SDF forces began to clear the inside of the prison, which wasn't fully retaken until three days later on the 26th. However, clashes excuse me, continued in Hasaka for many days after that. According to an SDF spokesperson, the operation took longer than usual due to the 700 to 850 young boys being kept inside the prison. The boys are all either underage ISIS suspects or children of ISIS fighters known as the, quote, caliphate cubs. SDF commander Mahmoud Barkadan suggested some of the boys actually took up arms with ISIS prisoners against FDS forces as they were clearing out the prison. The SDF said that ISIS fighters came from cells from far away from places like Ras al-Aim and Talibad in Syria and Ramadi, Iraq. Over a thousand ISIS fighters and prisoners were recaptured or surrendered, and according to the UN, over 45,000 people were displaced in Hasaka from the fighting. In the end, at least 117 SDF fighters and prison guards were killed, and four civilians were killed as well. At least 380 ISIS militants were killed. It's not clear how many of the 700 boys were harmed and if they are included in this figure. 
One of the boys claiming to be a 17-year-old Australian was able to get a plea for help outside of the prison. He claimed that his head and hand were injured and that many other children were injured too. He also claimed to be near the bodies of other boys ranging from 8 to 12 years in age. It's important to note that none of his claims are confirmed at this time. It's also not clear how many prisoners managed to escape recapture, but some of them did. SDF units were searching for ISIS cells still by February 5th in Hasaka. Islamic State supporters from all over the world took to social media to show their support for the prison siege. And the siege led the Prime Minister of Iraqi Kurdistan, Mansour Barzani, to order the region's military, the Peshmerga, to strengthen their defensive positions and take necessary measures to ensure the region's security. We will take a quick break and we will finish it out. All right, on February 3rd, soldiers from the U.S. Army's Delta Force launched a raid with close air support from Apache gunships and drones against a compound in the town of Atmi in northwestern Syria, which was housing the top leader, or caliph, of the Islamic State, Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qurashi. Al-Qurashi, a.k.a. Haji Abdullah, was named the caliph of the Islamic State after the death of ISIS founder Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi in 2019, also killed in northwestern Syria. Multiple sources reported that U.S. forces surrounded the compound and used a loudspeaker to urge women and children to evacuate the area. After roughly 15 minutes from that point, gunfire was heard, marking the beginning of the raid. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby stated that U.S. troops were engaging Qureshi's lieutenant and the lieutenant's wife on the building's second floor when Qureshi detonated a suicide bomb on the third floor, resulting in his death. Along with him, the bomb killed his wife and two of his children. Another child was killed on the second floor, according to Kirby, but it's not clear how that child was killed. Ten other civilians were safely evacuated during the raid. According to an unnamed senior administration official, President Biden was briefed on Qureshi's location no later than early December last year, at which point planning for the raid began. A raid was chosen over the airstrike option due to the knowledge of civilians living inside the building as well. That same official said that military engineers studied the structure of the building beforehand and determined that if Qureshi were to blow himself up, just as Baghdadi did when he was killed, that it would not cause the building to collapse and would pose little threat to anyone else inside the building on the downstairs floors. Al-Qureshi's lieutenant has not been identified, but he reportedly ran the leader's courier network, facilitating the transfer of communications to the broader Islamic State. Up to 13 civilians are reported to have died during the raid, including six children and four women. UNICEF confirmed at least six of those civilians had that civilian deaths. Excuse me. When addressing those reports, Secretary Kirby said the information was not definitive and that the Pentagon was willing to conduct an investigation into any civilian casualties. Towards the end of the operation, a group of fighters belonging to Haras al-Din, a local al-Qaeda affiliate, approached U.S. forces near the compound and began an engagement in which two of them were killed and the rest fled the scene. 
This area of Idlib province is controlled by other Sunni jihadist groups, and this exact same group tried to intervene during the al-Baghdadi raid, and I believe 15 of those militants were killed at the time, actually. During the initial infiltration, one of the transport helicopters suffered a drivetrain issue and was determined to be unsalvageable. That helicopter was then destroyed on site. Before becoming the second caliph of ISIS, al-Qureshi was one of the main orchestrators of the Yazidi genocide. Specifically, excuse me, the Sinjar massacre, where ISIS killed anywhere from three to 5,000 Yazidis and captured as many as 10,000 Yazidi women and children to be used as slaves. To say the world is a better place with him gone is an understatement. And if any of you are interested, I would encourage you to look up the Yazidi genocide. Of course, what you're going to find is horrific, but... Um, if you're curious, I would encourage you to look it up because I don't think a lot of people really understand just how horrible ISIS was, especially during the uh, early days in Iraq and Syria. And so to finish this out, I'm going to lay out some facts about northwestern Syria, Turkey, and jihadist groups in that area and Syria in general. Now, keep in mind, I'm not telling you what to think or how to think about them. I'm just laying out the facts for you. You could develop whatever opinion you want, or you could not develop an opinion. You could think these are complete coincidences, completely unrelated, or you could think Turkey has some sort of connection to jihadist groups and there is no coincidence. I have my own opinions. I will not say what those are. I'm just going to lay out the facts for you. One. Turkey is obviously a NATO nation. We all know that. Second, the vast majority of foreign fighters who originated from Europe and the Americas to fight for ISIS traveled through Turkey. Another point, Turkey has allowed ISIS fighters to seek medical attention inside its borders when they are wounded in combat, and ISIS has smuggled oil across the Turkish border for resale, which has provided the group with a lot of revenue. Another fact, it is widely known to those that are paying attention to the war in Syria that Turkey unofficially supports jihadist groups like the many Al-Qaeda offshoots in Idlib, like Hayat al-Sham or Haras al-Din, and it provides support to its proxy, the Syrian National Army, formerly known as the Free Syrian Army, which comprises of some jihadists and jihadist sympathizers. Another point, Atmi, where Karashi lived since at least December and where he was killed, is merely thousands of feet from the Turkish border. Atmi to Turkey is what El Paso is to Mexico. Another point, Berisha, where Abu Bakar al-Baghdadi was killed, was no less than five miles from the Turkish border and no less than six miles from a major Turkish military base. And to finish it off, ISIS's only two top leaders or caliphs were found no more than five miles from a major NATO ally. And they were living there, both of them, where they were found at least for multiple months. Again, I'm not telling you what to think. You don't have to think anything. I'm just laying out the facts for you.
that's all I got for you guys this week. Of course, I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. It really means a lot to us. You can find us on your favorite podcast apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Overcast, Radio Public, and Pocket Cast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate, all one word. Please consider supporting us on Patreon again. That is at patreon.com slash analyze educate. And again, that's all I have for you this week. We will see you next week.